The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. Who wouldn't want to live by water? It's something sort of innate and instinctual about humans that it gives some sort of value to your life if you have that, even if it's just a visual connection or one that you enjoy in your leisure time. Water is the lifeblood of humanity, but it also holds an integral place in the places much of humanity calls home, the world's cities. Be it a river, a coastline, a lake or a canal, water has been used to bring infrastructure, recreation, goods, wildlife and much more to our cities for centuries. Today, we investigate three watery stories from around the globe to see how this life-giving liquid impacts and interacts with populations from Toronto to New Delhi. We also return to the UK to see the unique challenges and opportunities brought up by developments situated alongside the country's rivers and canals. All that and more coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. In many ways, you would think that the very idea of the metropolis is at odds with water. But actually, the best cities work with water rather than against it. Rivers and coastlines provide sustenance, deliver goods and sustain ecology. But they also pose existential threats to some of our cities. And as such, water requires management. However, what cities don't require as is evident in many industrial areas around the globe, is for water management to always be beautiful. Despite this, the city of Toronto is showing that actually civic infrastructure can be more than just utilitarian. A recently completed stormwater treatment plant in the city is bringing both important function and impressive form to its new neighbourhood, proving that even if you've got a job to do, you can still do it while looking good. Monocle's Thomas Lewis brings us the story of this new facility that's impressing Torontonians in more ways than one. Toronto is one of the fastest growing cities in North America, and that's a label the city's worn fairly proudly for several years by this stage. You only need to take a glance briefly upward to the sky to get a general idea of the city's expansion. There are currently more cranes in Toronto than in any other city in North America. 
But with that growth, there's a renewed focus at ground level too, on one kind of urban building in particular, the designs for the city's infrastructure buildings, the larger pieces of Toronto's urban furniture, you might say, electricity substations, water treatment facilities, transport terminals and so on. Toronto has a long and rich history of having grand designs on these integral utilitarian parts of the cityscape. And given that this is a lakeside city, many of its grandest infrastructure designs are tied to Toronto's relationship with water. The Grand Art Deco R.C. Harris Water Treatment Facility, which opened in 1941, sits like a palace on grounds above the shore of Lake Ontario in Toronto's East End. It's an architectural landmark in its own right. Its scale and its grandeur still evokes the idea that if a building's task is vital to how a city functions, then its design should reflect that too, rather than camouflage it into the fabric of the cityscape. And it's that idea that's been embraced and reclaimed, you might say, in the design of one of Toronto's newest infrastructure buildings, a stormwater processing facility along a stretch of Toronto's waterfront that's the site of one of the most ambitious redevelopment projects anywhere in the city. It's architect Pat Hansen, who's the founding principal and creative director of GH3 Architects, spoke to me on the phone from her studio to explain the project. The whole purpose of that is to clean stormwater before it gets discharged back into Lake Ontario. The water is actually surprisingly dirty. When I was actually talking to the people that were building the facility, they talked about like just the crazy stuff that they find in stormwater, like you know, large things like knapsacks, needles, like all sorts of kind of garbage. It goes from being super dirty to pretty clean and back into the lake. The facility was commissioned by Toronto's Water Authority and the development corporation Waterfront Toronto, which is overseeing the vast redevelopment of this stretch of Toronto's formerly industrial lakeshore. Initially, Hansen says the idea was for the facility to be entirely out of sight and underground. But, as Hansen explains, she wanted the visible structure to also evoke the facility's core purpose. My intention was really to make the building as essential and a simple sculptural kind of form as possible that would be evocative. And it's shaped really... It's got, you know, a ridge on it. It's got a pitched roof and a ridge that runs diagonally. So it's symmetrical on both sides, but it looks like a large sort of faceted monolithic shape. And its roof and wall surfaces are all the same material. So it's shaped to really be expressive of the shedding of water. The stormwater facility feels at the moment as though it stands alone on the landscape. But as this lakeside swathe of Toronto develops during the years to come, it will become an essential piece of Toronto's built infrastructure that harks back in many ways to the grandeur and architectural aspiration of the city's infrastructure facilities in the past. Infrastructure buildings were housed in the most sort of ordinary, perfunctory way in, you know, shed buildings. Waterfront Toronto is a sophisticated client. They were looking for an architecture that would be conceptual and that would have a very strong architectural presence in a way to sort of celebrate the kind of investment that Waterfront Toronto and the City of Toronto was making in this project. That's relatively recent, that kind of ambition by a public agency. So the building is really, because of its very strong faceted shape, 
or angled shape is really to kind of engage the public in the sort of everyday experience of rain, of a storm event. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis. While many of us live in places where drinking the water that flows from taps and public fountains doesn't require a second thought, the same cannot be said for all city dwellers around the world. India is one country that is particularly struck by drinking water scarcity, with a report by UNICEF stating that fewer than 50% of India's population has access to safely managed drinking water. One solution to this issue being trialled in the country is the water ATM. These machines offer 24-hour access to clean drinking water for an affordable price and could help to reduce the estimated $600 million US dollar annual cost of treating waterborne diseases in the country. To explore how these machines are helping parched Indian citizens, Geetanjali Krishna sent us this report. Recently, I went for a walk to Lodi Garden in Delhi and my water ran out. Irritable and desiccated, I walked on and on and on and then, to my joy, I found a water ATM amid tall silk cotton trees and 15th century tombs. For the grand sum of one rupee, which is less than a penny, I could refill my one-litre water bottle. A couple of street children stood behind me, patiently waiting for their turn to buy clean water with the coins that they had collected. This was the first time I'd withdrawn anything other than cash from an ATM. And I was hooked. Water ATMs have now sprung up in markets, hospitals, slums and parks in Delhi. But it's the ones in India's villages that I find even more fascinating. Only one in five houses in the country have piped water. And the situation is worse in villages. Over the years, I've travelled all over rural India, north or south, east or west. The burden of collecting water always falls on women. They spend several hours of the day walking long distances to fetch water for their families. Even worse, they have to rely on old tube wells, dirty ponds and rusty taps. It's no wonder that 80% of diseases in the country are water-related. But not many can afford the equivalent of one pound for a 20-litre can of purified water. And it's in such areas that these little blue ATMs sell pure drinking water at one-fifth this cost. And women are spared the drudgery of walking long distances to collect water. Hollywood heartthrob Paul Newman co-founded Safe Water Network in 2006. In rural India, this network has developed water ATMs. The late actor philanthropist believed that access to safe water is a fundamental human right. In Telangana, which is one of India's driest states, the network's ATMs have started a blue revolution. Locals interested in becoming water entrepreneurs provide the space for the ATM, the network trains them, sets up the water treatment plant and also provides them with marketing support. Through this, they can earn up to £95 a month in profits. This may not seem like a lot of money, but it is a tidy side business in villages where jobs are hard to come by. With the state government, 
the network has also trained 170 water aunties. Water aunties are women who used to spend their days fetching water for their families earlier. Now that they have the time, they run these ATMs. Another company, Janajal, that operates most of Delhi's water ATMs, is going a step further. They have specially designed tankers that bring clean and safe drinking water to the doorstep. For the parched capital, home to a dying river Yamuna and dependent on neighboring states for its water supply, these tankers offer a cheap, clean source of drinking water. As I sip my water amid Lodi Gardens' verdant spaces, it strikes me. Perhaps access to clean drinking water straight from the tap should not be just a pipe dream and that the commodification of water the stuff of life may not strike everyone as cause for celebration but seriously tell that to people with chronic diseases that are a direct result of drinking dirty water or to the women who have spent much of their productive lives ferrying heavy buckets from well to home Gitanjali Krishna there, reporting from New Delhi. Finally today, we return to the United Kingdom to explore how city developments interact with the country's historic waterways. Waterside construction presents a unique set of challenges, challenges that almost every city has to face as urban populations grow and undeveloped land becomes increasingly harder to come by. London has always had a special connection to its River Thames which cuts through its center as well as with its extensive canal network a feature the capital shares with the UK's second largest city of Birmingham too one architecture firm that has had experience with waterside developments in both of those centers and beyond is Glen House Architects the firm has offices in both cities and an extensive portfolio of projects that work with canals and rivers I'm joined now by Will Poole, a partner at Glen House Architects. Well, thank you so much for being here on The Urbanist. Now, if anyone browses through the list of projects that your company has been involved in on your website, they would likely notice the watery theme that runs through your work. Why do you think you've become so associated with waterside developments? Yes, I guess particularly in London but in Birmingham and other cities regionally also you rarely come across a project that doesn't have some sort of infrastructure on an adjacent boundary and and most often it will be railway and river or one or the other or a canal infrastructure of course. And I guess we've been working particularly in the Docklands of London for probably about 20 years. So there's a building pattern of our projects across the sort of River Thames which has sort of really helped us to evolve our design approach to the working next to water. And is it because you've been skilled at this that you become a bit of a go-to practice or a practice that is shortlisted more often than not for these kinds of projects because you understand the the constraints and the opportunities that go with you know having that water lapping at the edge of your project? I'd certainly hope that that's the case and that's good to hear that that's what comes across. I think we're certainly not the only ones doing it, but we have been very fortunate to work with some really sizable pieces of the riverside in the last sort of 10 to 20 years. Now, let's start in in London. I used to work out in Canary Wharf which for listeners is perhaps one of the first real big chunks of the old docklands that was developed and not always in the the most pleasing way for somebody who worked out there in the early days but I was just amazed at how much is still going on in developing the docks the riverside 
all the way out east from London and, and just the number of homes that are being added. Could you just tell us a little bit about how you're involved in this? Because it, it really is the city continuing to stretch eastward, isn't it? It certainly is, yeah. I mean, even in the last decade or so that I've been involved in these projects, it used to be that Canary Wharf was a sort of isolated business district and certainly Stratford to its north as well. And now those things are very much part of the conurbation of London and the influence of that development is stretching way beyond that, beyond the Thames barrier, out to uh, Thamesmead and, and obviously into the wider estuary as well. And there's lots of growth planned. There's still, I think, somewhere in the region of 40% of riverside land available for redevelopment. Now, when you have all this water, what's the kind of engagement you you think of when you see that water? Because obviously the Thames is is not always the cleanest or safest of environments, so it's not exactly ripe always for beachside developments or anything like that. But are you thinking of it as a source of beauty, of amenity? What value do you see when you see the murky waters of an old dock or of a father Thames sliding by? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could consider the Thames as London's biggest open space. And obviously, it's had a very sort of uh, changing history, which continues to evolve. But whereas it started as sort of fishing, trade, and all of those things and, and transport, it's much more about now seeing its benefits and potential for enriching our lives and offering an, a leisure opportunity, commuting opportunity, enriching biodiversity, and obviously all the um, climate cooling benefits that body of water can bring to hot urban environments. Now, one of the projects you're involved in is London City Island. Now, if anybody who has ever been in London has had the, uh, which I think is fortunate, I I like flying from there, going out from City Airport. As you go out towards City Airport, you pass this tiny little island in a kink of water where there are now numerous towers that have risen. There's a big centre there for English ballet. But it's extraordinary how packed onto this tiny little island it is. Could you tell us a little bit about that project and the opportunities that have arisen there? Yeah, well, certainly that's a good example. It sits between two or three other developments that we've been involved with within a sort of five-minute walk or so. So it's a stretch of the northern side of the Thames that we're very familiar with. It was in very much a brownfield state, as we'd say. So it was developed before, but for an industrial use and more recently in the 20th century, factory and manufacturing So it wasn't seen as a high-value opportunity. However, our client had the sort of foresight to see the potential for it, this very unique bend in the River Lee before it enters the north side of the Thames there, and to transform that with a really strong vision into what you see today. I have to stress it, it's a proper, proper little island. But I was looking at the images today and it suddenly dawned me, of course, the only way onto that island, is it seems, is across a footbridge. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, you can approach it from the south as well uh, along the Thames path, but uh, installing the bridge was really critical to the success of that development because it meant you've got a two-minute walk, really, from any of those 1,700 homes or the English National Ballet across to the Jubilee Line station at Canning Town. So you're immediately within minutes of central London. Now, water, as you say, puts some constraints on you. You can't just stretch out and, and build all the things you want. So in a situation like that, are you encouraging a community to be car free. I, I actually wonder what, what happens to anybody who has a, a vehicle or are you having to provide even these days off-site parking to the tenants there? Yeah, so uh, increasingly we're looking at car free development, particularly in London and Tower Hamlets, where most of these sites are, have been particularly sort of keen on that policy for longer than others. And that particular project does have a multi-storey car park at the mouth of the site so that you have one sort of central hub for parking. And I guess the idea of that is twofold. One is that as car use declines, you can repurpose that structure potentially for something else. And also that it makes the island completely car free. So it's a true sort of pedestrian environment and it's got a rich landscape and you don't feel 
encumbered by traffic or have to worry about crossings and so on. Now, I don't know whether it happened at London City Island, but I was also intrigued because, as I said, I'm somebody who worked many years ago out at Canary Wharf, that you're also doing some retrofitting of spaces or encouraging the, the greening of spaces that have already been there for some time. You're, you're thinking about biodiversity and how you use the water to perhaps enrich people's lives as well. Is this a quite a common thing now that people are beginning to think how they perhaps embrace water, whereas in, in the past they kind of slightly turned their backs on it? I've mentioned Tower Hamlets already, and obviously they also are the borough within which the whole Canary Wharf estate sits. And so between them and Canals and Rivers Trust and also the PLA, they've got their own ambitions and their own policies in place to improve and enrich the water bodies that fall within that part of London. So we're doing some work with them in the Canary Wharf estate to provide experiences for people that bring them closer to the water. There have been large expanses of water there ever since it was obviously pre the financial district development in the 80s and 90s. They've never really been fully exploited for what they can offer the public. So as Canary Wharf transforms from this finance district of the 80s into a much more cosmopolitan mixed use by day and by night residential neighbourhood as well, it's important to offer people those sorts of amenities and experiences on the doorstep. So it's about creating floating structures that can manage flood mitigation, that can offer biodiverse habitats for birds and and fish and other things, and also to respond to sort of flood mitigation. Tell me, whether it's flood mitigation or it's that you're building a tower on a a muddy island, is another reason that you become a go-to is because I presume you have the engineering now some connections to understand what happens when you build in in what could be quite quickly water-drenched land. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I guess the the trend has been to build ever higher river walls as part of your redevelopment of these brownfield sites to cope with a potential 100-year future worst-case flood scenario. And that's something that's just running away with the climate emergency. And I think increasingly we'll see that building a wall higher and higher is not the only response or, or indeed the best one. But at some point we have to accept that the water is going to come in and learn to build on top of the water either on much wetter environments that in themselves may be more biodiverse and incorporate canal networks and so on, or introduce floating buildings, which is uh, one of the things that we've done with the water pavilions in Wood Wharf recently. Can I ask you, we did a programme about New York's preparations and preparedness for flood. And one of the things we saw there was that many of the buildings were beginning to build essentially giant buckets underneath them so that if water did come in, there was a way of draining water away, of containing it. Is this the kind of thinking that's also being built into the construction of contemporary towers as well? Less so in terms of towers here, but I think it's starting smaller than that with individual dwellings. There's numerous examples up and down the Thames, and certainly with our experience with the uh, water pavilions, the engineering and the design that went into the hull of that structure was really the key enabling aspect of it, and how do you enable a structure to move up and down and left and right and still provide a comfortable, usable internal environment that's serviced and does all the things you need a building to do. So every project teaches us something and I think hopefully teaches the industry something so that we're moving in the right direction always maybe towards applying those technologies to bigger and bigger buildings. Now you're working in the Midlands and the the north of England too, but in the Midlands you're you're very present in Birmingham. I'm looking at projects here, Port Loop, Warner's Fields. What's your involvement in that city? Birmingham, obviously, we less so myself because I've always been in the London end of the practice, but we regard it as, I suppose, our hometown. So it's great to have the opportunity to work in those kinds of sites. Port Loop is another great example where we've learned a great deal. It's been a design that's heavily informed through stakeholder consultation. It's an area accessible within minutes from the city centre by canal. 
but hasn't been recognised until recent years as somewhere with residential value and where new communities can start to grow and thrive. And it's really been a great success story. The first phase is being built and occupied and seeing how the community's really taken to it and the sort of sense of ownership of their open spaces and the sense of community there is very strong. And we should say that for our listeners who don't know Birmingham in the UK very well, it's often trumpeted as the as our Venice, the Venice of the Midlands, because there, yeah. there's a big canal network and there's a, a huge amount of water flowing throughout the city. But again, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. And we're seeing it in London, we're seeing it in Birmingham, but there was the period where the, the rivers fell out of use because containerization meant that shipments and goods weren't coming up the canals and rivers in the, in the way they used to. We didn't quite know how to use them. And they were neglected and allowed to be run down in many ways for many years. Do you think there is a, when you're speaking to people now commissioning architecture and local authorities, that there is a much better understanding of the need for nature, for leisure that we can get from these bodies of water? Absolutely, in terms of nature. And I think who wouldn't want to live by water? It's something sort of innate and instinctual about humans that it gives some sort of value to your life if you have that even if it's just a visual connection or one that you enjoy in your leisure time. But I think it's obviously much more multi-layered than that, and that's absolutely right. There are leisure opportunities, biodiverse opportunities, environmental cooling opportunities. We're looking at projects now that incorporate wild swimming in semi-controlled water conditions, but obviously these things have to be done in a way that's safe and managed, but it's incorporating biodiversity with leisure at the same time. One of the great untapped resources that the river offers us is transport, of course, And I think we've got a long way to go. And I think that's another part of the sort of London planning policy to double commuter transport on the river in the coming years. So that we're learning from places like Hong Kong or Sydney that have been doing that for much longer than we have. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Because, you know, often someone will come into the office and say, oh, guess what I did today? I I came on the riverboat. But you never hear them mention it again. There are some people it becomes part of their daily habit. But it's still too often seen as something special, out of the ordinary to get the riverboat. You get it because there's a strike or there's a problem on the roads. Why is it, you think, that we have been reluctant to embrace the transport side of, of the river as much as we could? You're right. I think it probably has a sort of hardcore group of people that enjoy to use it and uh, put up with whatever minor inconveniences there are of getting on and off and that sort of sense of delay maybe if you're rushing to or from work embarking the boat. But I think that's exactly the issue. I think there are people who enjoy to do it and there are plenty more people who like the idea. It's making it more accessible and more usable and just more of it, frankly, so that we've got a broader choice and a more connected river network. In a situation like London, especially in the in the east of the city, you're dependent on rail and tube systems being put in place for you to make those viable communities. That's right. And uh, again, you know, with the arrival of the Elizabeth Line, that seems to have projected us forward a generation in terms of the connectivity across the city. And, and I think it only sort of goes to underline that that potential is there on the river as well and potentially without anything like that amount of investment. Finally, just tell me a project that you're, you're working on at the moment and some of the, the opportunities that you see in, in the work that you're doing day to day. We're continuing to work with various clients as well as the Borough of Tower Hamlets to look at ways of maximising the, both the social value and, and the amenity value of these water bodies. As you alluded to earlier, particularly in Canary Wharf, there are huge expanses of water within effectively what was a business district. And it's really about looking at those again now, taking away some of those 1980s interventions, adding to them, getting people down on these floating structures to appreciate the water close up and also to incorporate within these structures opportunities to encourage wildlife and biodiversity. So it's really having a a compelling sort of transformative effect on the way that you perceive these districts of London. Well, many thanks for joining me today. That was Will Poole, partner at Glen Howes Architects here in London. 
And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. Make sure you keep an eye out for more urbanism stories in the latest issue of Monocle magazine. You can find us in all good newsstands or, of course, by becoming a subscriber at monocle.com. Today's episode of The Urbanist was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Art Garfunkel with Waters of March. Thank you for listening, city lovers. It's a trap, it's a gun